shame thrives on secrecy. So the it more does. you hide it, you keep it a, a secret, the more power it has over you. And you're giving that power away. This is a Therapy for Dads podcast. I am your host. My name is Travis. I'm a therapist, a dad, a husband. Here at Therapy for Dads, we provide content around the integration of holistic mental health, well-researched evidence-based education, and parenthood. Welcome. Well, welcome everybody to the Therapy for Dads podcast. Welcome back, whether you're listening in the morning, afternoon, evening, or sometime if you're awake with your young baby, if it's 2, 3, 4 a.m. and you decide to listen to a wonderful podcast called Therapy for Dads, welcome. And I would like to welcome back a guest who has been on the show um, before. Uh, he is a return guest, uh, a fellow uh, therapist, counselor, friend for can he's coming back and i'm excited to have him on again and to talk about well this topic that we've been kind of tossing this idea back and forth for a few months now i think right i think it's been a few months yep yeah um and it's on uh, you know a big topic uh, that we're gonna this is not gonna be an exhaustive conversation but i think it's a, a good starting conversation with a lot of good information you know we've done a lot of research on this we've spent time We've had also um, just kind of experienced personally with this topic um, uh, with ourselves as well as with clients we've worked with, maybe even family and friend, uh, family and friends that we've maybe sensed this. Um, but it's this topic of shame. So um, we're going to do our best to kind of have some good dialogue around this, kind of what it is and ways we've seen it shown up in ourselves and maybe in the clients we've worked with. Um, kind of how it impacts us and kind of what to do about it. So let's just jump right in, uh, I guess, with shame. We're going to just, you know, jump right into the deep end here and, and see where we land. So, um, yeah, shame, so, uh, I guess. <laughs> let's just start with the story, huh? What What's a good way we can kind of capture the hearts of those listening around shame? <laughs> oh, you, maybe, you, might, you want to go straight into a story, okay. Yeah. Well, or we could, you know, or we could define it. Like, what is shame? You know, what is it? What's a what's a working definition of shame? So we can kind of know where we're starting with here. It's it's a tough one to define. Um, I think for for me, I don't know if this is an actual definition, but um, I think for me, it's this feeling hmm. of fear. Uh, I would say fear and and uh, coming across as not worthy and and trying to hide that. Hmm. And that was, it sounds like that might've been your personal, yes. maybe a personal message that you struggled with, like I'm not worthy. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so that might've been your shame narrative or message, like a, a big one for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I could relate to that s similarly, but slightly different. And they tend to, what I've noticed with shame messages or narratives um, yeah. or soundtracks, I mean, I've used different analogies, is that they're they're similar, they're very similar. They might have a s ever so slight difference in language. So the one I struggled with was I'm not enough. Hmm. Um, which is somewhat I'm not worthy, right? They're both shame messages, but some ever so slight kind of nuance to them. Right. Since we just talked about some shame messages, what are some of the other common ones that you've heard with the clients you've worked with um, besides I'm not worthy, I'm not enough? What are some of the other ones that you've you've heard? I mean, those are the two most common ones that I've experienced. But uh, I, I know uh, one that was constant for me was and I think it still shows up quite a bit is I should know better hmm. so if it's making a mistake simple error it's I should know better hmm. and uh, 
yeah, that, that one still comes up quite a bit. Yeah. When that message comes up and maybe we, let's kind of do the hypothetical that we buy into it or that we don't even notice that it's there. In fact, I feel like that's a good place to start is actually we, I feel like we often don't even notice its presence. It's just there in a way it's quote unquote normal to us. We're used to hearing it. We don't question it. It's just as like quote truth. Um, so we don't really recognize its, its pervasiveness. It just kind of is. So, um, when that kind of has its hold on us, how have you seen some of the impact it's had on individuals or on the clients you worked with, or even with yourself with that kind of shame message or, or quote unquote truth? How has that played out? Well, I could share, I, I could share a personal story now. Um, sure. uh, I think for me, and I, I mentioned to you some of the resources you shared with me and I was going through them. There was a story that, uh, felt eerily similar to mine, but, uh, mm. uh growing up. Uh, being the eldest, there was, and, and being from an immigrant family, there was this pressure on me to perform and kind of set an example for my younger siblings. So I remember just <laughs> specifically, and, and I'm not saying this with any judgment towards my parents. Uh, I love them a lot and I know what they were doing. Like I see the value of what they were doing. Um, but I remember coming from school, super excited. I think I was in grade eight and I'd gotten the highest mark in math in my entire class. So I was super proud. Like it was almost a hundred percent. And, um, I get home and I'm like, Hey mom, look, I got an A in English. Uh, sorry, in math. Hmm. And, uh, she looks at my report card and she's like, yeah, but you got a C in French. And I, I just, mm. you know, I, I, I could still picture myself just kind of like, just, you know, having that feeling like we're just like, okay, well, I guess that's what life is that you just focus on the things you could do better. And, mm. um, I think for me that became my narrative in terms of, okay, well, it's like, how can I achieve more and more and. Um, I think I also subconsciously put myself in relationships where that was the narrative where I created this scenario where I was always constantly trying to improve and then my partners always found faults and some something here and there and and it would bother me so much and I would try to like <laughs> uh, just bend over backwards to, to fix those things, right? Mm. And, and um, it still comes up every now and then even like simple as yesterday, made an Instagram post, had a couple of errors in there. And I just went through it later. I'm like, oh, geez, like, what are you doing? Right. And mm. I had to stop myself and be like, it's just an error. It's just a mistake. It's a mm. human mistake. It shows my human side. <laughs> so mm. it's all and good. And what was that? What was that? What was the shame trying to break in there with even yesterday? What was the the message it was trying to send you to buy? Well, it was basically like you're, I mean, I'll be honest, the message was like, you're stupid. Hmm. <laughs> what are you yeah. doing? You're stupid. Yeah. And I I just heard that voice and I stopped it. And I think we'll get there probably later yeah. in the episode. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Um, it still happens though. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree. The voice, even for myself, it'll pop up from time to time. Less than it used to, I would say. And I would say... I, well, we'll get there, but I, I think I'm more aware of it now than I was, you know, um, when I first started recognizing it or being aware, which was uh, maybe when I first started therapy. So, 
16 years ago, I think, is when I first started therapy. So that's when I first started becoming aware, like more aware of it. Like, oh, that's what that is. Like, oh, that's shame. Like having a having a label for it. I think I was aware of it before, but I didn't have a label. You know, I think that's, you know, really shame is that kind of, it's always there, but we may right. not always have a label for it other than this is just truth. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. just who I am. I'm obviously not enough or I'm obviously stupid or I'm obviously not worthy or I'm worthless or I'm obviously unlovable or I'm right. All those things that we can label ourselves at. So I'm wondering how does shame differentiate from guilt? Can we, can we kind of quickly kind of differentiate between the two so we can give the listeners a kind of a way to kind of separate the two between guilt and shame. And and we'll kind of focus on healthy guilt today, by the way. There's a whole other topic called unhealthy <laughs> guilt. We're not going to go there, but kind of healthy guilt versus shame. Can we kind of do a quick example of the difference between the two? Um, yeah, yeah. And I'll look to you as well for support on this one. But uh, I think guilt is just feeling bad. Well, I don't know. Is it? Yeah, feeling bad for something you, you did. And shame, I think, is more of that internalization of it. Hmm. Right. So guilt is like, it's something you did. You're not associating with it per se. You're, you're not internalizing it. And shame is like, no, I am this, right. I am bad. Mm. Whereas guilt is like, oh, I did something bad. Right. No, I I think that's, that's spot on is that it's the, it's a behavior that you can change. I did something or I, or I didn't do something that you can still feel like a lot, like a, you know, a, a lack of doing an action. And then shame is, well, no, I am this thing. Like I, I'm not enough or right. I am, I'm stupid or I'm worthless or mm-hmm. I'm bad. Right. It's that negative self prescription yeah. about your whole being versus a, an action, behavior, a thought, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I heard another way to differentiate, I heard this said is that, you know, guilt is about if we break a legal, moral, or ethical code against someone else or ourselves, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And the purpose of healthy guilt is to essentially identify that we've wronged somebody or ourselves right. to then take ownership over it and then to repair. Like that's mm-hmm. the intention of healthy guilt is to essentially repair the rift, the damage, the, the harm, mm-hmm. um, and to bring healing and restoration. Right. Now, shame is that it's the, this kind of subtlety of like, and this could happen too, and often guilt and shame go hand in hand, right? So how do yeah. maybe how, how how do guilt and shame tend to kind of go hand in hand? How have you seen that play out, whether with your clients or with yourself? Yeah, I think I think it's uh, for me. I would say it's when it's repeated, right? Mm. So you kind of keep doing the same thing over and over. And I would almost say, you know, you subconsciously do it, but you, you're kind of aware. And and I think when there's that repeated behavior, as you mentioned, then. I, I could see where shame comes from it hmm. or, or in some situations, I think if, if it's a behavior, you may not label it as such, but then if someone else tells you, Oh, you know, again, gives you that, Oh, you're bad or you're not worthy because you did this. Hmm. And then that could also transform the shame, especially if you're impressionable. Yeah. And, and who tends to be impressionable? Children. Yeah. Well, cause that's where it starts, right? It's often, yeah. and, and I, what I've heard and what I've read and the research says, at least you could, you could confirm or, you know, this or not is that shame actually, it starts before guilt. It's, it's more of like a pre-verbal thing. It, it's more an earlier part of development is the sense of shame before guilt. Guilt is kind of like a higher, mm. uh, not as primitive understanding. It, it's more, it's, um, oh my gosh, what's the opposite of non-primitive? 
more higher level thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. I can't think of the word right now. Um, and, and I've seen it with my clients all the time. It's like they'll they'll do the thing like they'll feel guilty about something, but then their rationale as to why they do it is well because I'm I'm it's because I'm not enough, mm. right? Or mm-hmm. I did bad because I'm stupid, or mm-hmm. right? So they it's like it's like a domino. It's like the guilt, and then it's followed by shame, and the shame is kind of like. I think, was it shame stands on the shoulders of guilt or was it guilt stands on the shoulders of shame? Who defined it that way? Oh, I'm blanking. But there's a great image. It's like they stand on each other's shoulders. And so like when one falls, the other goes with it. Like, so that guilt is followed by shame. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, isn't it shame on the top of shoulders yeah. of, of guilt? I think. Yeah. And I've seen it too with a lot of kids. It's it's pretty natural for us to do that. And And my understanding as to why we do that is because as children, we are developmentally egocentric. That is to say, um, how our brain development works at a young age is that we're more sent fo- um, self-focused. Not, it's not a negative thing. We're more, right. quote-unquote, narcissist, <laughs> narcissistic, <laughs> quote-unquote, is because that's just how we view the world is through, like, we are the reason, which is often why you see kids struggling with when parents get divorced or the issues, like, well, it's my fault. Like you see kids blame yep. themselves all the time, yeah. even though they have nothing to do with it. But it's like to make how they're, how our brains are wired is that we're kind of the cent- center of the universe in a way, because we don't have that full development of understanding that, you know, that we aren't, <laughs> that we're not the cause of everything, good, bad, right, right wrong. And so developmentally, we kids do that and they internalize it because that's the mm-hmm. only thing that they do because conceptually, that's all that makes sense. Right. And so they take on this sense of shame and then it starts to kind of have through repeated experiences. So what are some other sources of shame that you've seen in the clients you've worked with or what is the research or data showing? Some other sources of shame. It could be verbal. It could be nonverbal too. Uh, mm-hmm. If we're speaking of childhood and children, um, a lot of the times what I've seen or, or even experienced myself is uh, you may carry shame for when your parents wouldn't give you enough attention or your caretakers, um, you know, if they were focused on one sibling more, especially if one sibling needed more uh, at any given point. So it mm-hmm. could it could also be nonverbal in that sense. Um, to your point, right? There's so much, you're so much focused on yourself as a child that you're not able to obviously make sense of what's going on. So you, you tend to personalize a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So, so some of the stuff is explicit, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And some home, you know, works with a lot of people and I've heard it where it's very explicit. It's told, mm-hmm. it's said to them by parents, by caregivers, yeah. um, teachers, authority figures, where it's very much clearly said like, yeah. And then, so it's like evident. Well, obviously if these people are telling me this, it must be true. Yep. And I've also heard the more implied messages where it's not said, but perceived. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then there's and, cultural factors yeah. as well, right? Okay. Social factors. Um, yeah. What are some cultural factors that you've noticed well, or seen? Depending on the culture. I mean, for myself, there was a lot of shame around failure, um, around religion. Yeah. It's failure in religion for sure. Mm-hmm. And then, and social factors too, whether you're a boy or a girl growing up in society, there's other sources of shame that come with that. Um, you know, for example, <laughs> can't, boys can't cry. Mm, yep. So and a lot of shames around that if you do cry, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so then the tendency is to hide it. So mm. I'm sure we'll get into how people do that 
with shame. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, there's there's many factors, right? That can, and again, going back to being a child, you're you're so impressionable. Um, you obviously don't know how to interpret some some of these things or make sense of them yourself. Like you know, you're not thinking with a rational brain. Um, mm-hmm. You haven't have that development yet. So so you just yeah. take a lot of things at face value. Yeah, and and some of the other sources are saying too. Going back to the implied or explicit, implicit, explicit is, I, I think we could all agree that yeah, those homes where there's like overt, explicit verbal abuse or things like that, that kids can internalize it. And by the way, not all kids, just because you come from a home like that doesn't mean some kids are very resilient and very able to recognize that lie and be to move on from it. But I'd say more often than not, of course, you'd see that. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask an obvious question just to kind of give the audience this answer to, to you is, hey, in a home where there maybe is, let's say, loving, attentive parents, can a child still develop a sense of shame? I believe so, 100%. It's like trauma, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's very subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have all the right conditions, and then maybe it's the smallest thing that's said, and, and you carry it. Or or your parents have done a fantastic job, and maybe it's people at school, your yeah. teachers, could be your, your siblings, could be mm. family members. And then again, you can go back to cultural and social factors, right? You may get something from outside your home. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's good to differentiate and to say that because you're right that it's there's a lot of factors and sources. Um, it's not just parents, although that's a big one. You know yeah. what is kind of the home environment, but then you could have very loving, attentive parents, and some some kid in your class says something for whatever reason for mm-hmm. you that just zings you and like sticks with you, or a teacher, or like a coach, or cultural things or expectations. So it's, and sometimes it's unintentional byproduct or I like the example you gave of, you might've had a sibling who needed more attention from your parents. Yeah. And maybe you had some amazing parents, but because your brother or sister might've needed more for whatever reason. Yeah. Sometimes a kid, not always, but can internalize, well, well they're, you know, I'm yeah. loved less or I'm less than, because obviously, you know, parents, you know, they're paying attention to Timmy or Susie what there must be something wrong with me, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then we begin to have that internalization. And so what are some ways that you have seen people cope with the shame narratives and messages? Well, I think uh, some of the ones that will ring true for a lot of people are perfectionism, hmm. avoidance. Uh, I mean, a good example of that is trying to stay busy, right? hmm. creating work. Yeah, and, and secrets. Secrets don't help. Uh, but people tend to, you know, keep secrets. So, so that's another one. You're really hiding this vulnerable aspect of yourself because the fear of, of abandonment or rejection or whatever it is that you're, you're worried about. So you tend to take on these behaviors, but you know, perfectionism, for example, like, are you really going to perfect everything? You're, you're going to constantly chase it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's where that shame cycle comes in and spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing is some of those ways of coping, like perfectionism, being busy, um, making work. What it sounds like is trying to kind of deal with that shame, trying to, you know, what, you know, i.e. cope, like I'm trying to cope yeah. with it. But what tends to happen with that form of coping with shame, like that kind of creating more work or being busy or perfectionism, does it really, does it really answer or solve that sense of inadequacy? Or does it just kind of lead to more empty hole and trying to shove more in there? <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I, I don't think it solves it, unfortunately, uh, or, or fortunately, I guess it's 
if it doesn't solve it, then maybe there's that's a sign that something needs to be dealt with. Um, but yeah, I, I, it it makes it worse. Like for example, earlier I said I realized I made a mistake in this post. The perfectionist in me kicked in, mm. and had I listened, I probably would have done other things. Like I would have gone and deleted it, rewrote it, and uh, but I would have created all this extra stress for myself for really nothing. Hmm. And the message I would have kept telling myself is all the messages I've already shared. But yeah, there's it doesn't solve it because you're going to continue to go down this spiral, like I said, and and then you are going to fail, um, and then you're going to create this whole narrative around you and and carry it around for a really long time, for days hmm. sometimes too, right? Yeah, or really your whole life until like it quiets down. Yeah. Um, you know, one way I, cause my message was I'm not enough as I, I think I mentioned this earlier. Right. So a lot of ways I tried to fix that was by performance and excelling and getting, you know, awards or certificates or things to prove that I'm, I'm enough. Like mm-hmm. if I do this, then, right. then I'll be enough. If I do this, then I'll be enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Which really that becomes an endless cycle because it's never enough, no matter what you do. And, and obviously I realized this in my own therapy and realized the kind of insanity of it all, that it is an endless cycle because there's always something more I can do. Oh, oh, there's always something. It's end, it's never going to stop like perfectionism. There's always something more. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the lie is that it's, it keeps you trapped in fear, as you mentioned earlier, and the fear really is isolative. It, it keeps you not open to being authentic to people because of what I hear when I kind of, when I do the following people's thoughts or my clients kind of going down through their, their thoughts as they get darker and darker and darker, often it's like, well, if they, if, if they know me, they'll know I'm a failure and then I'll be, they really want to be with me. Or if they know, if they really know me, they'll realize I'm not enough or they'll right. know that I'm not perfect or I'm yeah. not. And therefore then I'll be alone and rejected and no one want to be with me. Mm-hmm. And that's the shame lie, right? Well, don't tell people because if they know. And so what we do is we kind of suffer in silence in our own little head of trying to like perfect a post or get every degree I possibly can or make 10 figures. And then if that's not enough, have 12 figures or I need seven cars or I need all these homes or I need this. And and it, everything we do is trying to fix that, but we never are honest with it because we're bound by fear by this narrative. And that narrative says, well, if people know this yep. and a big impact it has is definitely relational between you and your friends, your partner, your family mm-hmm. keeps you isolated, but then yeah. it keeps you tired too, by trying to prove yourself to yourself and to everybody around you. And yeah. It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. <people>. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like I said earlier, you know, shame thrives on secrecy. So it does you hide it. You keep it a, a secret, the more power it has over you mm-hmm. and you're giving that power away. And, and like I said, you're carrying this burden around all the time because mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to be someone you're not. Yeah. And for to flip it for a second, what purpose do you think shame serves as a positive? I know it sounds weird to ask that question, but if we look at it from shame as serving a purpose and maybe a function, is there a positive function yeah. it serves? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's the whole idea of the inner critic and some of the work we were kind of reviewing, but there is a purpose, uh, I believe. I mean, for me, if I look at it, when I got that message as a child that, you know, you should know better or or you can do better, uh, whatever, you know, however you frame it, I made that my focus in life. 
Now, I took it too far at times, but when in a healthy fashion, when I was aware of it, it did dr- drive me to, you know, do things at a certain level and, hmm. and hold myself accountable. But at times it got too much when I let that inner critic take over and run my life. Hmm. But it, it's, it's good to have that voice every now and then to kind of point out things that you may need to pay attention to. Hmm. You can highlight some things you need to pay attention to. Something else I think I've seen is in a way it serves as maybe a, a, a pseudo protection. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or a perceived protection. Going back to the idea, if people really know this about me, mm-hmm. then they will reject me. So in a way, it serves as a protection of finding out that answer, <laughs> even though it it's rarely true. Right. Because often what we find is when people become vulnerable with safe in, within safe relationships, those people that they fear will reject them actually don't. Say again, safe of relationships, course. and of course. that's yeah. a you know. I mean, a podcast around relationships and safe ones and not safe ones, but authentic people. And, and, and it's funny when I ask a question, when I say, hey, Tim, if it's a client I'm working with, like, Tim, if, if, if your buddy John came to you and said these things, right. what would you say to John? And yeah. instinctually, without even thinking, 99% of people, without even, like if, if John says, I'm an idiot, I'm, I'm not worthy, I'm not enough, I failed, like, you know, all the stuff that we tell ourselves, you know, he immediately goes without even split second. It's like, no, you're not. You're fine. Yeah. That doesn't matter about that test. You're okay. It doesn't mean you're not enough. You totally have value. It's like we have this intrinsic knowing of other people that it's not true for them. Right. But then when it comes to, to themselves, it's like... I'm the one special person. And I always do this trick with them. I do it the friend technique. It's like, well, imagine your friend. They say, oh, of course not. I'm like, well, what a, why do you think that about you? And they they kind of, then they have this long pause often. It's like, mm-hmm. well, because. And it's like the weakest. It's always yeah. like the this like no uh, evidence. It's just the weakest like answer. And it makes them think. You're like, well, because I'm it, because it's me. I'm like, yeah. well, that, well, why you? Right. You know? Right. Um, yeah. The, the other thing I ask clients is, do you know if that's true? If that's mm-hmm. a fact, right? Like, do you know this person is going to reject you? Mm. And they're like, well, no, I don't know for sure. Well, then, mm. you know, <laughs> what's the worst case scenario? You've already figured it out. So, right. And I think it's, it's an kind of a way of exposure therapy, like go, you know, face your fear in a sense. But once you kind of reframe it in that sense that you don't know this for a fact, mm-hmm. you have how much evidence do you have? Mm-hmm. A lot of people are able to get wrapped their head around, okay, well, I'm doing this and saying this or feeling this because of this one situation from the past. And then it all starts to unravel, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then you can identify the source of the shame for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering too, I remember when in Brene Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, which I know you've read, it talks about some distinction between men and women in her research, right? It talked about a difference she saw, and this is general, and she even said this is generalizing. It's not every man or every woman, but she found a unique theme and difference between generally men and generally women when it came to how they experienced and how shame manifested or how how they struggled with it. Um. Can you kind of quickly speak to that if you if you remember? If not, I could. I think I remember. But yeah, I mean, I don't remember the whole list, but I think for men, it was really around specific things: being the provider, mm-hmm. uh, being responsible in the sense like of taking care of the family and the home. Yeah. Those 
I think gender kind of roles that we have in society specifically. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And for women, it's slightly different, right? It's around sexuality and mm-hmm. uh, body image. So, yeah. so there's those sources of shame that come up for women. So uh, those are some of the ones I can remember from the list. I don't know if you. Yeah. More. No, I think those are what I remember too is like, yeah, a lot of men was like a lot of their job, you know, yeah. or their paycheck. Right. Yes. Um, perf- it was a lot of performance stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then women was more of like the image and how they appeared and how they saw themselves in the society. And so that was interesting in her research. And she did, what was it, 10 years, right? It was 10 years of researching people. And then, you know, obviously the book then came out of her research. And she's huge now. Brene Brown, great book. Read it if you haven't, Daring Greatly. It's it's a great read. Um, She hits a lot of stuff on there, and it's all data-driven. So it was cool to see that in the sense that there is some unique differences between men and women in that Mm -hmm. and how we address that. And I could relate to that. I'm like, oh, yeah, it was totally about my performance. It was all about performance. <laughs> it was for yeah. sure all about that. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is exactly it. You know, it's good to see that, that there there's some nuance. And then, as you mentioned earlier, that those different cultural things, too, can totally throw in a curveball, depending on the cultural background as well, and or the family culture, too, right? It's mm-hmm. on top of that. It's just like, what's your family culture? Because that's a whole yeah. other piece. And it could look very similar or very different. But... All, all of it, though, all the shame, whether it's affecting men or women, it all really has the same impact, which I think the goal of shame, and I heard this in another book I read called The Soul of Shame. Like the goal of shame is really to isolate you and to destroy you. Like really, the goal of shame is to to isolate you from other people, to not make you vulnerable, to keep you afraid and, and, and in fear and like this endless cycle of trying to perfect either your occupation, your body, whatever it is that you're trying to, whatever that thing is, it doesn't stop. Um, And I like in that book too, In the Soul of Shame, he calls it that we all have our own personal shame attendant. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that imagery in the sense that it's like we have this attendant that knows our every move, it knows our every thought, it knows our good traits, our not so maybe traits that we like about ourselves. Like it knows every nuance of us and it knows how to deliver the shame message in a way that we receive it and don't reject it. Mm -hmm. Like rarely is it just screaming at us. It's very subtle, (laughs) right? It's very like, it just kind of floats it in there. Like it just kind of comes in. It's like, oh yeah, of course that's true. It's just like, oh, here you go. It's like, Travis, it's because you're not enough. Right. And you're like, and you buy it because it knows it knows exactly how to float it to you and, and, and almost like the perfect timing to then, yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, because you just buy into it. And that imagery of a shame attendant is like, that makes so much sense because it's not like this. It's not like banging a drum at you. Like, you're not enough. It's like we'd, we'd, we would know it. It's, it. We'd be able to call it out. Like, no, get out of my house. But it's like, no, it's friendly with us. It, it might even compliment us at times. It's like, right. you know, and right. then it... Yeah, but don't forget. Don't remember. Yeah, don't talk to them. Don't tell them because if you do, remember, don't forget. Remember what happened. Right. And it might even pull back some memories of some pain, right? Remember when that happened when you were five? Remember <laughs> when you needed your mom and yeah. your mom went to your brother instead? Or, or remember when your boyfriend or girlfriend or that teacher? It's like, remember that? Yeah. And so it takes these things and like that amplifies it right at the right time when it, when we're ready to receive it and we're like, oh, yeah, you're right. And we kind of sink into it and kind of mm-hmm. collapse in fear, right? I don't know. Yeah. What, are you, what are your thoughts on that? What do you think about that imagery? Yeah, I mean, I could definitely agree with it. It reminds me of that kid's movie, Inside Out. But, oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Another <laughs> but, good movie, yeah. But uh, 
I, I think as you were saying that what was coming up for me was a lot of our core beliefs, which are mostly the triggers for shame, right? Especially if we haven't questioned those beliefs and carried them from childhood, specifically after certain incidents, mm -hmm. those core beliefs, I, you know, and, and I, looking at some of the research too, is they create those automatic thoughts we have and those thoughts are there 24 seven and they're just happening. And, and I think to your point at the right moment, especially if there's a situation that's either happening or about to happen, that message will come in. Mm. And, and I think it's because we're at our most vulnerable mm -hmm. and because we're not able to speak about it openly, we internalize it all and, and carry that mm. shame around and create this scenario in our heads that is a lot worse than it actually is. Mm. We don't question these things. And I think partly is we don't know to question them. Right. Yeah. I, I was never taught to, question that stuff in a way you know just for sure there wasn't a class on that it right. wasn't like you know it wasn't especially with these thoughts that go left unchallenged it's like we just i don't know it's a thought it must be true why am i thinking it right or yep. we hear someone's voice like you said going back to some of the sources like it's that teacher's voice in our head or your your dad's voice or your sister or brother's voice it's like well this you know just kind of or our own voice you know it kind of comes yeah. in and we just we believe it all like well this must be true because why else would i have this thought if it wasn't true we don't we don't know that we can question it some of us do but i feel like majority of people that i work with initially don't know that they can challenge their thoughts it's like they never it's like they never thought about challenging their thoughts before it's just like what do you mean challenge my thoughts <laughs> yeah i mean the, the whole concept sounds pretty bizarre um i could share an experience i had recently of just catching my thoughts in action mm, it was, sure. it was yeah. so strange so uh, over the summer i started reading um eckhart tolle's book specifically uh, uh power of now hmm. he talks about just observing our thoughts being the mm. the uh the observer right yeah 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 Sitting there and, and seeing those thoughts just passing by like a cloud mm. and i remember one day right around the time when i was reading this book um, I started thinking of a situation and then I started creating this whole narrative around it and this whole outcome and conclusion and all of it within <laughs> seconds and yeah. thoughts were just coming like bullets. Yeah. Right. And I took a minute to pause and just see these thoughts, like just visualizing them coming like all around me, like a storm. Mm -hmm. And it was so trippy because I'm like, Oh, what's going on? And just being able to observe them. And be like, okay, go away. Right? None of this is true. And the fact that I was even so blown away by it and trippy is because I've probably never sat there and observed these thoughts. I've just, mm. because I've become these thoughts, I just believe them mm. uh, as they're coming and I'm just associating with them and internalizing them. I've never really treated them as, oh, this is just information that's being sourced. Yeah. And I, I think the same goes for feelings too, right? We could just, yeah, I feel this way. Therefore it must be true. Like I have a feeling just like I have a thought and it's like, they're all storming yeah. around us and this just must be true. And now for a short break. 
So if you're looking for ways to support the show and my YouTube channel, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. There you can make a one-time donation or join the monthly subscription service to support all that I'm doing at the intersection of fatherhood and mental health. And all the proceeds go right back into all the work that I'm doing into production, into continue to grow the show to bring on new guests. So again, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. I think this is a natural segue into this next part is like how, you know, what do we do now? Like, how do we, how do we heal from this? And I think the first thing I would say, at least when I'm working with my clients is first helping them identify kind of what their narrative is. Like, is it, you know, is it, I'm not enough, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I'm, you know, whatever that we, whatever their unique message that hits them that they're like, Oh, that's it. That's the one that I always struggle with. You know, that's the thing beginning to observe Mm -hmm. when that thought arises or when it's present. And I like that you said that is like, just learn to observe that I don't have to believe every thought, but I could just, these are just thoughts or like the clouds floating by. It's like, it's just a thought, you know, and I don't have to be attached to every single thought as truth, but I can challenge them. But if you don't know that, like you kind of, you are stuck. Every thought just takes you. It's like, takes you for a ride. Every feeling takes you for a ride. So I first start by helping them. What is their narrative? Like, at least for what I do is what's, what's their message Mm -hmm. or messages. You know, they might have a couple, but they usually have like one or two. That's like usually one that's like, that really hits them. It's like, oh yeah, that's it. I'm not enough or I'm worthless or I'm not worthy or I'm flawed or I'm unlovable or I'm broken. I'm whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm not important. Right. And then I say, okay, what do you, where do you notice in your body when that comes? Like when that, when yep. shame is present, when your attendance present, what do you notice in your body? So I help them identify the sensation or the feeling. Right. And then maybe are any emotions present too, like any particular feelings? Often, I think, I don't know, sadness, um, sometimes anxiety or worry, fear, things like that. Anger is huge. I've seen a lot of anger with people. Um, Yeah, anger. Yeah, yeah. So then I say, when you have those feelings or those thoughts or the body, just just notice it. Don't fix it yet. Just just like call it out. Like, oh, there's shame. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's that feeling. Oh, that's that's that body sensation. Oh, that's that thought. Just, oh, there it is. Almost like, I say, like, shine a flashlight on it. Or another imagery I give is, imagine it's a tape playing, like a cassette tape, and you're going and turning off the tape. It's, I'm like, it's going to start again. It's it's like a creepy ghost cassette player. It's going to play itself again. But, yeah. like, imagine you're going over and, like, oh, stop. Stop it. Like, every time. Or label it. Do something where you're pointing it out over and over and over again. And I tell them, you may do this, a couple, you know, within a week, easily a, a couple hundred times. Probably. <laughs> and if yeah, you do, don't oh, be, yeah. don't be, and if you do, don't be surprised. In fact, that's a good thing. Like, don't think the more you catch it, the worse you are. <laughs> like, cause sometimes they get this, well, crap, I'm not bad. I'm like, no, if you catch it all, that's a good thing. That means you're noticing it. You're yeah. aware of its like talent in you. Like it's tentacle that it has you. It's like, just pay it, just call it out. That's a, that's a big step I do. What, what's, what's a way you start to help people initially when they start to identify their shame narrative? Well, I think it's very similar, uh, helping them identify, and I think that's what worked for me too, but identify the message, right, of mm. shame that people carry around, like you said, and and trying to even understand where it came from, mm. right? Like we've discussed earlier, yeah. it could come from our yeah. parental figures, and, and then we just 
just hang on to it, never question mm-hmm. it. And a lot of the times I, I'm amazed because, well, I, I shouldn't be because that's how, how, I, how I experienced it too. But it's just how people just get blown away when they realize the first time they internalize that message and where it came from and hmm. whose voice it was and how they've just kept that with them their whole lives. So Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So getting to the root is another way you do it. Like where does it how deep is this root? Like where hmm. where to recognize the shame message beginning? I think I think that's a good thing too is, you know, recognizing in the present, which you have to first recognize in the present. You first have to be able to like see them. <laughs> Yeah. Same thing with shame. You first have to be able to observe that it's present. And then you can start to question, where is the root of this message? And there might be multiple, you know, branches of the root system. Sometimes root systems are quite deep and quite pervasive. And some people it's quite, you know, I guess a little simpler. But more often than not, I find that um, there's multiple root systems in this. And it has its kind of, we kind of have to deal or talk through a process or heal from some of these um, some of these messages, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, so I think it's like observing it's there and starting to look at the root cause, like where, you know, where's it coming from? Um, what is, what are some other ways we can fight shame? What are some other ways we can address it? The hardest one I find for a lot of people is, is being vulnerable and it's putting Mm -hmm. it on the table. Right. So if, if you're worried about getting rejected, just putting it out there. Mm-hmm. And and again, you it's uh, you have to be able to have that relationship with people. You can't just be vulnerable with everyone and, and trust them in that mm-hmm. sense. But if you have close people in your life and and you know you can trust them with your emotions, it's putting it out there and and giving them a chance to also see that side of you and and tell you that maybe it's not going to be that way. So mm-hmm. um, so I think that helps, right? And to your point, as you said, with your client. Or if, if your client were given that scenario of their friend, they would immediately respond with compassion and empathy mm-hmm. and support. So I think a lot of people respond that way if, if you're able to share that vulnerability. Yeah. Well, and I, I actually have some notes up from Brene Brown's book, you know, kind of reviewing what we talked about. And she talks about a few things, right, that, that she calls it the four elements of shame resilience, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she said there's four things you do. One is, which is actually funny what we talked about. One is you recognize it's shame and it's triggers. Like what's the biography in biology of it? Like what's the root cause? What, what yeah. is it? So starting yeah. with that and then moving to practicing critical awareness, like what, like reality checking the messages, kind of like where is this, is this thought even true? Like yeah. if I, you know, which, which in turn, um, you know, it's like that friend met like that friend technique. Like if your friend, would you, would you be critical of your friend's messages? Yeah. Well, yeah, you would, of course you would be. You'd be like, that's not true, dude. Like you're not, not enough because you didn't get this job promotion. Like right. of course not. I still, I care about you. You're my friend. Like I'm not going to go anywhere, but like the lie is that and we, we, in a way we'll, we'll sometimes reality check our friend's messages, but we forget yeah. to check ours. It's like, we got to check our messages, like what it is. And then reaching out, which you said is change happens in, in vulnerable and in relationship, not in isolation. So it's like reaching out to friends, like a friend would reach out to you. It's like you reach out to someone you trust to share this, to get it out, to not keep it going back to what you said earlier too, not keeping the narrative hidden because yeah. shame builds in secrecy. Absolutely. So we share that vulnerability, which is obviously risky because it's going right up against the fear. But what you find is with those safe people is that, wow, it's out there and they didn't reject me. 
they didn't make fun of me or whatever I, the worst I thought would happen didn't happen. Yeah. Oh, so it starts to kind of break the spell exactly of the, of the magic, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And it's that reaching, it's not an isolation. It's always through vulnerable relationships. It's never on your own. It's always in relationship. And that's some of the the themes I saw too. And all the, all the stuff around shame, it's never alone. It's always in relationship because that's where shame lives is in, is Mm -hmm. relationally. Therefore, the antidote is relational. Correct. Correct. And I mean, most of the time, the shame is based on relationships too, right? It's people yeah, oh, around yeah. us that we're worried about. So. Totally. Whether intentional or unintentional. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, we could have very loving parents that never intended this, that were actually really good. But for whatever reason, we had a perception and we internalized something and mm-hmm. that became it. Um, and actually, we're very healing in relationships when you share it with people. Um, yeah. Because you're like, when they do, when they take that risk, which is very risky to be, you know, um, Brene Brown talks about being brave, right? You know, courage, mm-hmm. you know, dare to be great, right? Courage to face shame. Is that we find that there's healing in those relationships that were once bound by fear and by this fear of being known is that, oh, well, actually, I'm now known and I could be free, mm-hmm. not bound by fear. And right. so those are some things that I, I loved. And, you know, those those are the elements of shame, resilience. and There's boundaries too, right? Boundaries? Which one? Well, boundaries, I would say, is another way to be shame resilient. Oh, yeah, yeah. As you're, you know, we're talking about being vulnerable with people and sharing, but sometimes we can't share with people. And sometimes there, there are people who are going to either re- reinforce these messages that bring shame to us. Mm. And, and often it's setting those boundaries. Mm. Yeah. No, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that would be probably what we kind of briefly talked about is recognizing, and that is not always easy, especially if we're doing this for the first time, but is recognizing those safe relationships versus the ones that cause more harm, mm-hmm. which is when boundaries would be a protective of, this right. is actually better for me yeah. to do this. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts on what we can do? Anything else you're thinking of, of, what else can we do to when we when we first recognize what our our narrative is when we know what our message is of shame when we start to kind of observe it when we start to reach out when we start to shine the light so to speak and label it and um, be vulnerable any other things that you think we can do to keep on healing from it? Well, I think yeah, I mean a lot of the healing needs to happen within yourself, right? Within ourselves, and it's having compassion for that. Typically, it's that inner child, right, that's been wounded, and that's who we're trying to protect. So it's having that awareness and compassion for yourself hmm. um, and and recognizing that. Yeah. That yeah. message was, sir, it served a purpose to, as you mentioned earlier, to protect us, but it's, it's questioning it and, and working through it. And I yeah. think once you're able to do that, to a certain extent yourself, then you're able to take that risk of being vulnerable around other people, have the courage to set boundaries and say no. So you really need to find that within yourself first. And and sometimes it's really having that deep dive around figuring out, like we said, where did it come from? But trying to forgive that part of our life, whether it's forgiving other people or ourselves and, and working through it slowly. Mm. As we kind of start to wrap up, what what have you found as you've been working on fighting your own narrative of shame and coming and kind of living differently? What have you found on the other end of it as you have 
kind of where you were versus where you are now, what are some things you've noticed in yourself or relationally, like interpersonally or within yourself since you've been kind of doing this fight and and changing that narrative? Yeah, I'll preface it with um, still a work in progress, like everyone else. Yes. Um, I think what I've found personally is is a deeper sense of peace and comfort within Mm. myself because I've been able to remind myself that whatever that message is, I'm not worthy is not true. Hmm. And that takes a lot of power just to, to even say that. And then that's, as I said, allowed me to have the courage to say no to the things that don't serve me from that hmm. perspective. And, and then also being vulnerable with people with not no expectations. I think for me, I've come to accept that, vulnerability is a gift I'm giving to myself. It has nothing to do with the other person. And Mm. if the other person can't receive it, that's on them. That's not on me. Mm. So, so that's been huge, a huge transformation. And, and even just, as I said, when I've become aware of these thoughts and when I'm able to catch them, I'm Mm. able to say, okay, you're a thought, you're not true, go away. Or, or it's like, okay, yeah, you're just trying to tell me something, but I don't really need it right now. It's it's having that conversation with your inner critic and and the thoughts that keep coming in. So so you can you can't run from the thoughts either, right? Like I said, the whole idea of staying busy and and avoiding it is not helpful either. So you have no. to face those thoughts and and observe them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. You have to. You can't avoid. In fact, I feel like the more you avoid, the the, the more stuck you get. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. yeah. The bigger, the bigger the storm gets. I, I love what you said. It's like vulnerability is a gift that I give, and and whether this person receives it or not, it's a gift I'm giving. Well, and um, I'm giving it to myself as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It, but it's like a, it's a gift that is a present for you and them. It's like a, it's a relational gift. Right? Yep. And, but I don't whether they accept it or not. It's not, it's not up to me to to control that. Yeah. And if they don't, I don't have to internalize that shame because I know that me being vulnerable and them, whether they accept it or not, it's not, it's not right. up to me and it doesn't, and it doesn't determine my value. Um, yeah. They're rejecting a part of themselves. Yes. Not a part of me. Right. They're maybe their own, their own shame because they can't accept that part of themselves. Often, often it's more of the, they can't accept that part of them. So they can't accept it in you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what that's allowed for me is immediately, the focus now shifts away from me onto the to the other person. I'm not internalizing it or personalizing it. I'm, I'm feeling like compassion for this person that, oh, I want to mm. give this person compassion and space rather than judging them or, or internalizing it and creating shame for myself. Yeah. I could relate that too. Like living free from shame. And of course it's, I don't think you're ever done. You just, I just get better at recognizing it. You know, when I was in my early twenties and I was really starting this out to fight it, I was way more stuck in it. It was way more pervasive and I was doing a lot of things too behaviorally that was feeding into the narrative, um, in a way, self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, there's definitely things I did that I think fed to the lie. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it, but then I became aware. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm actually, what I'm doing is actually making this lie bigger because of what I'm doing. Like my behavior is making this true. <laughs> um, 
And so when I realize that now is that I, like you said, is since coming a long way, gosh, 16 or so years, I'm you know, late 30s now, 38, so 16 or so years of doing practice, which I'm still a work in progress, yeah. but I've so much better at recognizing its voice. I know when it's there, you know, it every now and then kind of slips in a little bit, but then I'm like, I, I'm, I'm kind of able to recognize when it's in my system. It's like, ah, no, get out. Like I'm yeah. way more in tune. Mm-hmm. And I too agree that it frees me to be more when I'm with another person, um, whether it's you or my wife or my kids or a client I'm working with or a friend, a stranger. And again, imperfectly, I still get stuck in my own stuff. But what I found on the, on the positive is that I am more free to be present to the person in front of me because I don't have to prove myself. Exactly. You're not in your head. I'm not in my head. No, I'm, I'm not trying to find a way to prove my worth or value to this person. I can just be present to the person because I'm not in my head. I'm, I'm present to this right. conversation, to the relationship. Yeah. Um, I think before I was so more in my head and trying to prove myself. Yeah. Um, to, to, or I used to call it chameleon myself to fit what I want them to see me as. So whether I'm accepted and not rejected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, I found like just having that awareness is a, also helped me when my beliefs or my opinions are challenged because then I don't take it personally and and Mm. not something as shameful either I'm able to just to your point remain present and be like okay you don't have to agree with it (laughs) right I'm not getting worked up or or feeling like again that shame in my head that narrative where I'm like Mm. then I try to excessively prove my point or prove myself to be right or, or, or just shut down completely. Mm. It's like, okay, that's fair. You know, you don't have to agree with me. That's. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's, it's, that's another benefit too, is you're right. You don't have to, the other person, you don't need to get the other person's approval or to agree with you to find that value or worth. It's like, you could just let you, they're free to be them. And I could just let that go. I don't have to let that affect me negatively. I could say, okay, just kind of, yeah, that's okay. Like, (laughs) you know, here you go. You know, I get to leave that there. (laughs) I don't have to own it and personalize it. Um, you know, we're coming on the hour. I'm wondering just to kind of, and again, I There's a lot we could probably keep talking about this, but just, I think we hit some good points on shame and, and, it's a big topic, but I think we hit some of the the core elements of it. And I'm wondering, what are some quick resources you found for those that want to maybe dive a bit deeper than this? You know, an hour that we've talked about is is a lot more um, yeah. nuance. And but again, I think we did. I think we did a good job. Um, yeah. I'm wondering though, what some things you found that were good resources to to further education if people want to do a deep dive. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I know. Like you mentioned, the Brene Brown book, um, Dare to Lead or Dare to... That's another one. Daring Greatly. greatly. Dare to Lead is good for leaders who want to do it in the workplace environment. Yeah. Yeah. So Daring Greatly. And uh, I would say her other book, which is probably not well known, but that's where she kind of started talking about shame. And it's the one I came across first is The Gifts of Imperfection. Yes. I feel that to be very valuable. Um, and then I think there's another one, uh, Dr. Nicole LaPera, she did how to do the work. 
mm-hmm. where she talks a lot about the inner critic and inner child and which all ties into shame. Uh, mm-hmm. That book is really good because there's a lot of journaling prompts as well. So it really gets you thinking and mm-hmm. writing stuff down for me at least really helps because then I'm able to get to the root as we talked about. So, yeah. So those would be two really good resources I would share if people are interested in finding out more. Yeah. There's another book too. I like, I've read both those. Those are really good. And I'll, well, and I've also read the other Brene Brown. There's a few Brene Brown ones for yeah. sure. Um, there's another good one for those that are more um, religious that listen to this podcast that I've also read, um, which I think does a good job paralleling religion with neuroscience. It's called this The Soul of Shame. He's a neuropsychologist. Oh, oh sorry. He's a, he's, a, he's a psychiatrist, sorry. But he also parallels religion and religious texts. But when I read it, he does a really good job answering the question of shame from a psych- psychiatric perspective as well as a religious perspective. Because in the end, they kind of agree is what he's showing is that they actually they're kind of saying the same thing right. at the core. And so for those that have a little stronger religious affiliation who are okay with that, I think it's a really good read. He has a really good job. Um, if you're not religious at all, don't, don't read the book. Um, but then the other books would be just as good. So I think those are, they're all good and they all kind of say, you know, they kind of do this. Right. Those who are listening can't see what I'm doing, but my hands are going together. They kind of, they have some parallel and similarities and some nuanced differences, um, but they're all really good. And obviously there's some journals you could read too out there. Um, but as far as books, those are the big ones that I've read as well. There's actually not a lot I find, um, which I find fascinating. There's not a lot of books on this topic, especially for how pervasive it is. I feel like, (laughs) yeah, I think it's a lot of it is buried under, you know, psychology and stuff too. Right. Yeah. 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 Core beliefs. We were talking about internal family systems. So Carl Jung, basically, you know, if you you can derive shame from there in terms of the shadow self. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you want to bring Jung, you can. Jung, you can. It's a little more of a heady read, I would say. (laughs) You could... You could read that. That that's a book to read for sure. <laughs> have you read his work? Uh, like, I've, I've started diving into it. I have previously, but I'm doing another cycle through more in depth now. It's 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 it's, it's thick. It's intense. Yeah. It's good, but it's like it's definitely it takes you a bit to get through. It's not like a quick read. I would say. I think Brene Brown's book is a good quick. Yeah. Like if you want a quick read, probably read Daring Greatly or the Imperfect Gifts of Imperfection. I feel like that's a a little more accessible and then you can kind of slowly get more difficult and challenging because yeah. Jung is great, but it's a, it's a read. <laughs> not for the sweet part, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, but it's, it's, it's really good. If you really want to get heady and, and you know, even that, well, gosh, even philosophers talked about it. I mean, it's, it's kind of sprinkled in a lot of things. I think it's just not labeled a lot. It's just kind of right. there in a lot yeah. of texts. It's just not labeled a shame, but it's, it's there. It's in philosophers. Yep. It's in, a whole bunch of stuff, but right. um, any other closing thoughts for our guests or encouraging no, things? No, or thank else? you for this space. Thank you for yeah. having me on again. Absolutely. It's good to have you. We'll have to, we'll do it again. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. we'll have some other fun topic, but thanks. And thanks all the listeners. And yeah, please, uh, if you have any questions, um, obviously reach out to me. You could always follow uh, Furkan on his Um, I'll link his stuff in the description, his website, his Instagram. um, Just it'll be in the description. Click on it to find him. Um, Again, you you probably recognize him from those who've been listening to the show. He's been on here before. 
And uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, my friend. Have a good rest of your night, man. You too. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for joining and listening today. Please leave a comment and review the show. Dads are tough, but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone.